Greetings, I am your host, Tina Clark, and welcome to the second season of my Weirdest Experience podcast. This is the show of the weirdest experience that has ever happened to you and gives you a venue to fully express yourself and share your weirdest story with the world. This is the No Judgment Zone, a safe place to share your experience. And it's also a place where we discuss what happened to you and share some possible theories on what and why this happened. If you would like to be on the show, email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. Hi friends, thanks for listening. This is your host of the Weirdest Experience podcast, Tina Clark. I also wanted to share with you, I have my own energy healing business called Stargazing Angel LLC. I offer energy healing sessions, EFT tapping sessions, tarot readings, and I also offer classes on Reiki, shamanism, and tarot, and more. If you're interested in having a session with me, please call 843-695-7218, or you can email me at contactstargazingangel at gmail.com. You can also check out my website, which is www tinakinneyclark.com that's t-i-n-a-k-i-n-n-e-y-c-l-a-r-k-e hey everyone welcome to the show i have kate walinga here today with us she is actually a fellow podcaster she is a forensic psychologist and a crisis clinician now on permanent disability She has found ways to connect and interact with people through her podcast, Ignorance Was Bliss, where she collects stories and has conversations with creators, actors, and various other backgrounds. She has her own story to share with us today about her interactions with a serial killer. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. It's Monday morning. We're recovering from Thanksgiving weekend. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good word for it. Right. So tell us a little more about yourself. Uh, You're a fellow podcast host. So and I listened to some of your um, episodes and hopefully you listen to some of mine. So sure. And, and, you know, the the beauty of podcasting is that there are sort of no rules and uh, because my show started off as very true crime because that's what I knew and I thought you know talk about what you know and I figured it would be 20 episodes of me lecturing about the topic because I used to teach as well and then I'd be done and now instead it's almost four years later and almost 400 episodes in And so it seems to be going pretty well. And it's not true crime anymore. I decided I didn't want to stay within one genre. I wanted to talk to people outside of that sphere. And so after maybe six months, I started just opening it to, does anybody want to come on? And I don't set parameters about what we're going to talk about in advance. Mostly once in a while we do a planned case you know, a study, case study or deep dive or something like that. But for the most part, it's let's hit record and see what happens because I want to give listeners the opportunity to hear 
the hosts or an actor or an author in a different context. Yeah, I'm the same so, way. Even though my podcast is about stories, sometimes we talk about topics. And I'm a Reiki master, so I like to talk about energy healing and you know all that sort of topics too. So, you know, it, it's it's organic. Whatever comes up comes up for a reason, right? Yeah, that's how I approach sure. my classes too, because we tend to talk a lot in my classes, have a lot of discussions and, you know, it can take up a lot of time, but I figure it comes up for a reason and that everybody in the group needs to hear this question, needs to hear the answer and discuss it. Sure. I mean, that's the, you know, I think the magic of connection with other people is not so much what's going on inside my head or what's going on inside your head it's what happens in the space between us oh yes and the that's my favorite thing and so i worked as a forensic psychologist in the states of new hampshire and massachusetts for several years both in a prison setting and in a locked psychiatric hospitals and then and you know bless them but they ruin everything and so i i had changed jobs to something that i could work nights and weekends and that's where the crisis clinician came in which the difference is a crisis clinician works in the emergency room or an office or sometimes in your home at the very earliest point of entry often into the mental health system where someone has suicidal or homicidal thoughts or they're having a psychotic break something like that and i sit down with them and i listen to their story and we decide okay are you safe and what next what's the next safest step from here hospitalization or outpatient treatment or some other option and then the forensic work happened either as trial was coming up or after trial i would do correctional work in the facilities and so that was sort of a long term or the end of someone's appearance in the system so i i had the, the privilege of dealing with people at a lot of different points along the way and in 2014 i broke my back which I do not recommend, not fun, and had to go on disability. And I spent a couple of years moping and feeling useless and feeling as though my life had been relegated from having a starring role in my own life to being a, a secondary or a supportive role in my own life. And suddenly I was no longer somebody, I was somebody's mother right and and that's fine to a point but i was really losing myself and so in early 2018 i approached my husband and i said i want i need a hobby i'm gonna try podcasting and you know as i said it started out the very earliest couple of episodes are just me talking and then i had the opportunity to interact with someone else on my show in a setup episode for a later planned thing and 
that's when the magic hit. That connection could happen even though I was stuck home. You know, I can walk, I can get around, but it's difficult. And so the ability to make a new friend is a thing that I kind of lost and finding that connection again was magical. And so it has become my lifestyle and it's, it's super fun to sit down and not have any idea where this is going to go today. I just know it's going to propel itself along somehow. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's super fun and you can still connect with people over the computer energetically. If I, you know, interview the right person, meet the right person, we get all hyped up and excited during the episode. Like, and you know, I don't, I don't upload the videos, just the audio, but you can feel like when you have that connection, it's really fun. And when you have, when you resonate with each other, you, you charge each other up like batteries, you know, like if you're around the wrong person and I'm sure you've been around some maybe dark personalities you know, and those, those kinds of people, they suck your energy. And then there are other people that boost your energy. So it's always fun to meet someone new that you get a boost from and they get a boost from you, you know, it goes back and forth. Oh, it's magical. There are times where I get either anxious or tired or lazy or whatever you know i'm mm-hmm. just in this head space where i'm like i don't want to i, I don't i don't want to go downstairs my my studios in my basement and i don't wanna you know there's the whining uh, i'm comfortable and warm here i don't want to move and i kind of have to force myself to take that first step and then by the time i'm done i'm revved up yeah because yeah. it's just so like this is the thing that that I can and am supposed to do. And it's, it's magical. Well, I, I don't know if you feel like this about yourself, but I feel like I'm a resistant person, um, even to things that I know that I enjoy. So I understand that about myself. I kind of accept that. Like I was telling Kate, uh, before we started recording, I was kind of having the Monday, you know, non-motivated energy this morning but I know that once I get on and meet Kate or whoever else I'm talking to or before I do that energy healing session I can be resistant too but I know that I love it and that in the end I'm going to feel a lot better so you just do it yeah I've learned not to say no I've learned to give myself permission that if I get in the middle of it you know even if it that means halfway down the stairs or or whatever i i give myself sort of verbal permission that look i can i can cancel i can stop but i need to try and i don't cancel once i start coming down the stairs and, and i get set up and then i'm like okay let's do the thing and i feel better every time i do and so i've learned i i had a long period of of recovery after the birth of my third child and was on home health care for a long time and wasn't allowed to drive, wasn't allowed to leave the house on my own because I had significant 
uh, surgical wounds and the like that had to heal and people would come friends would come to spend time with me or take me out and there's such an anxiety immediately when someone says you know do you want to go to lunch and my reflexive answer is no uh-uh don't want to because it's easy to say in the moment because in when they say it all of the steps that have to be taken in order to get from bed to restaurant or whatever all pile up at once in my head and I would just no no can't can't and I learned to get very strict with myself and say always say yes you can undo it but always agree to it in the moment and then there's that social not pressure but politeness I guess of I've said yes I'm gonna follow through I'm not gonna waste somebody else's time and every time we went I had a good time and I felt better. And so I've applied that very much to my show and to appearing on other shows of say yes. Yeah. And do you, do you think it's almost like the mind gets in the way? I don't necessarily think it's feeling. I think it's your thoughts get in the way and start talking you out of things, you know, and you got to say, my, I mean, be quiet. <laughs> be quite, well it, i call those the brain weasels the brain weasels start screaming and you know they say that nobody wants to hear your story or nobody wants to talk to you or nobody wants to come out and and i have to sort of hush don't, don't. Mm -hmm. that i've have a lifetime of stories and if i do have a day where i don't have anything to share the other person will and so there's been a couple of times where I've had a hard time connecting with my guest. I think more because they have a hard time telling their own brain measles to hush. <laughs> you know, that they, they, it feels as though they, they have a block in front of them. And, and I describe the, the process of conversation like playing catch with another person. And sometimes you're playing catch with a soccer ball or a kickball and it's easy to throw throw it back and forth and it goes well and you're having fun and you're doing tricks and great and then there's other times where it's like you're playing catch with a bowling ball you know and i take this heavy weight and i pick it up and i throw a question or a comment at them and it lands at their feet with a thud and we both look at it like okay well you got to pick that up and throw it back at me and they lean over and they pick it up and they throw something back at me and it lands with a thud and it just doesn't have that that flow that bounce mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. it and that's just that's fine I, I usually attribute that to nerves and we do the best we can yeah for the most part it's been pretty good I've had one terrible interview <laughs> It was like, it was like, all right, night, hundred percent, kind of pretty good, and then I had one god awful one. I don't know if you've had those, but I had to just stop recording after thirty minutes and say this is not working. It's not working. Oh, the worst. I have. I so as I say, you know, I I will be dropping episode three hundred and seventy four in the next day approximately and of those so i've recorded closer to 400 because i have a bit of a backlog 
that mm-hmm. I'm working through. And of those 400, approximately, there have been two that I have recorded and then discarded. And one was a matter of this didn't go anywhere. This didn't vibe. And it was it was two guys who wanted to talk about sports ball and I'm not a sports ball person and it really felt as though they were just simply looking to self-promote and that's all well and good but it's not what I'm about and I I don't I want my guests to hype their work I want my guests to to introduce themselves but then we're going to move it somewhere and I didn't feel like we ever got out of introductory mode so I called and told them look I want to re-record I want to take a stronger role in this because this was pretty early in the process and I I wasn't as self-confident yet and stepping in and moving it along myself because Mm -hmm. my guests for the most part had told their stories pretty well and so I told them I'm like I don't this is not a hard feelings or a you suck kind of thing this is just it didn't doesn't feel like we we had any progression do you want to come back on and they said yes but we never rescheduled and I'm not chasing them down for it so there that there was that and then i had another where the woman had a really good idea for a show for an for an episode and i was interested Uh, effectively i want to talk about the trauma that i survived as a child and how that impacts my personality and my decision making as an adult and i was like that's entirely on brand for me let's do that thing and instead for an hour and a half she complained about her mother and i understand that she felt the need to do so but again it never moved anywhere Mm -hmm. and so in her case i called her and i said let's re-record and try and shrink it down time-wise and just move the conversation along a little bit more um, I don't feel like it would be real well received by listeners and it doesn't put you in a great light. And it's really important to me that my guests come across as best as I can present them. And her response was vulgar and swearing at me and telling me that I didn't know what my listeners wanted and that she would say the same thing if she came back on. And I was like, all right, well, thanks for your time see ya mm-hmm. and that one she's she's i have a very short no list like a literal list on a whiteboard behind me of people just as a like visual re- reminder to myself of don't have these people on and some of them it's a matter of the vibe that they put out on social media already or interactions we've had where i've learned things about them and i'm like i don't need to promote this I don't need to lift this person up and some of them are like that where it's like we've had bad interactions and I can't present them in a good light so I'm not gonna try yeah and it's your show it's your show and my show and you decide who's gonna be on and you know it's it's our creative venue yeah it was and that took some time for me to to come to that feeling of like this is these are not my stories that are being told but it is up to me to drive the truck as we go mm-hmm. and 
to I'm very, very protective of my guests in the sense that if you have a problem with something that's said on the show, you come to me and you don't go after the guest because I've made the decision already that this is a story worth telling. And if it makes you unhappy, that's fine, honestly, because it means you had a thought and I mm-hmm. want people to think. And that's that's key to me. So. I have this this show that I started in 2018 that I keep thinking I'm going to run out of things to say. And the answer is I'm not because there are so many people out in the world and they bring their stories in. And my show is not an interview. It's a conversation. And I'm really clear with people that even when we're doing a structured you know, case study or that kind of thing, there's going to be asides and rabbit holes and other topics because that's what life is like. And I want my show to feel like a conversation that somebody might overhear. I don't know. I don't attend parties. That's not my thing. But if I were to attend a party, that's the conversation. That's the vibe I'm going for is when you when you just meet somebody and you click and you share this moment this this time and so it's been it's the best it's an addiction absolutely like i own this (laughs) yeah i'm not sure i'm not addicted but it's it's a fun hobby it really is it's really fun so how long were you a forensic scientist a forensic psychologist psychologist. uh, which, which which just means i did assessments for the most part um check-ins therapy isn't really a thing that you can do in prison settings um because part of a good therapy session on the outside is that this therapist and you it it should be you you should walk out feeling like you've had a mental workout in the same way that if you walk out of a gym you have that feeling that you've had a physical workout and you can't do that to someone in a prison and sort of get to vulnerable places or get to places of change in their lives as well prisoners inmates don't have a lot of freedom to make change in their lives so that's a that, that's a tough one but you can't do that and then send them back out on the rec yard vulnerable and hurting because that just makes you might as well put a kick me sign on their back you know so not so much therapy, but a lot of assessments for competency to stand trial, um, for diagnostic purposes, and sort of status. You know, are they are they having a change in status over time? Is it real or is it fake? Are they looking for medication or are they legitimately having an increase in symptoms? That sort of thing. And I loved it. Like. I did it for probably about 10 years, give or take. I did, I mean, I did, I did the forensic work, I guess about eight years. And then I did about four years of the crisis work and then I broke my back. So that was its own thing, but you know, in total between those jobs and some time off to have kids, it was about a 15 year span. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just what an honor. 
to have people share their stories with me because who gets to see that who gets to see somebody at their most broken or most vulnerable moments or who gets to really see what it is like to try and connect with another human being who has been boiled down to just numbers on a wristband and who is literally handcuffed or shackled to the chair across from you like it it changes a lot but it was a privilege to be able to do that and to be able to see people in those moments and it shakes up a lot of assumptions that you might have and yeah i miss it every day yeah because in the end people are people no matter what they did or what they experienced and yeah yeah and i and i mean I, I believe in this i don't believe in the system it's i mean it's america so i don't really believe in the system but i believe in treating humans like humans while they are in the system and i do believe in consequences so i believe we need some sort of criminal justice system i just think that ours is so fundamentally flawed that it hurts my heart to think about at times but overall yes these are humans and they have families and they you know they were toddlers once and they were confused teenagers once and the vast majority of people in prison did not wake up that morning and say i'm going to commit a crime today the vast majority had a moment in time where emotion and impulse and circumstances and desperation all came together and they got caught. Yeah, it's like the perfect storm of right. emotions, events. <laughs> so walk us into this story about the serial killer. I mean, I knew a couple mm -hmm. and there are not i mean i have to protect client confidentiality so i can't name them but the fbi has changed the definition of serial killer so i actually knew quite a few because it used to be that there had to be three murders separated by a span of time with a degree of repetitive behavior leading up to and during and after the crime now the FBI says two is enough to start recognizing the pattern and intervene sooner. So people talk about there are fewer serial killers nowadays. I don't believe that. I believe the answer is there are, we're catching them earlier. So it's less frequent that you get these offenders with the really high victim count it's still happening as well you know i think another thing we didn't pay a lot of attention to when we started talking about serial killers in the 70s and 80s is that all of the information we had was from the failures from the ones who got caught and we really didn't know about the ones out in the world but with when you have someone who is known to fit that profile of serial killing they have both an initial I mean, they have a ton of initial evaluations, as I said, competency to stand trial and diagnosis and sort of just a like a structured interview. 
to get a baseline read on somebody, a lot of paperwork, a lot of documentation. And then there are check-ins that happen, re-evaluations that happen, to, as I said, to make sure that they don't change status in some way. And also nobody pretty much has just one trial and done. There are usually appeals, there are more charges that come up over time. And for each of those subsequent trials, there's another degree of evaluation that happens. And I was always an employee of the state, which means I wasn't hired by the prosecution or the defense. My job was to find whatever I found and say whatever I found. And I, it wasn't up to me to decide guilt. It wasn't up to me to decide sentencing, anything like that. It was up to me to give my opinions on, on things and to not get too invested in whether the court bought in or believed me, but just to say, this is what I saw, take it for what it's worth. And when a serial killer has to go back or I, I, or for the, for the, for their first trials, they're he under heavy guard, a lot of corrections officers, a lot of cops everywhere. And once they've been in the system for a while and it's pretty clear that they're not going to act out, there's not going to be violence or an escape attempt in the courthouse you know you can kind of tell some people need to remain under guard like that and other people just need to be observed they need to have eyes on them at all times but it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody armed and i was never armed for any of my jobs and um once in a while they would say to me for, for someone with any charges didn't have to be a serial killer but they would say to me can you sit with this guy for a while you know, we, we got to go do some stuff. Can you sit with him? Here's the panic button if something goes wrong. But can you be, you know, sort of like chain of evidence, right? Where yeah. somebody always has to sign off and know where to, can you be the person, you know, in charge? And I would be like, I guess I can be responsible for another human being. I mean, they let me have kids without a license. So I guess I can do that, you know, sure. And this one guy was actually in a wheelchair. He was quite old, quite infirm, but needed an evaluation because he was showing some new symptoms and there was some talk about changing where and how he was being incarcerated. There was no talk ever of him being released. And in fact, he wasn't even housed. There's a lot of movement of prisoners from state to state. And so he was housed somewhere else because he had committed crimes somewhere else in the country as well. But he was brought back to New Hampshire because that's where his initial crimes occurred. And they had me do an evaluation as though he was new. And they wanted me to see him because I'd never seen him before. And my supervisor had. So they wanted me to see him to lay fresh eyes on him and come up with as unbiased an opinion about this guy as possible and i always tell them i always i always told the inmates here's what i'm gonna say in court and they didn't have to like it but here's i wanted them to know i did not want to be on the stand and have them have a, a surprise of any sort 
And so this guy knew that I had come up with a certain diagnosis and that I felt he was competent to stand trial, but it was what it was. And we got along fine. And so one of the biggest fears that I, that I carried when doing this, when sitting one-on-one in a room with someone is that they would confess to a crime that they hadn't previously been tried for because I have to report that I have to tell and I have to, you know, make sure that the proper authorities know about it. But that means a whole lot of involvement and sort of a permanency and a publicity that I wasn't seeking. So it's not a matter of don't tell me out loud, but in my head, I'd be like, oh, please don't, please don't do that. I, you know, I just, I want to do what I've been hired to do. And I, I, I'm not looking to uncover secrets or write a tell all or have anything sensational happen. That's not what I'm here to do. So we're sitting and it's pretty quiet. There's these little tiny rooms and there's no windows and there's no TV. And so it's just two people sitting there and we sat there in silence for long enough for it to start to get weird. Yeah, just start to feel <laughs> a little yeah. like, like this is, this is awkward and uncomfortable. And he looks at me and says, can I tell you something? And I'm like, Oh God, here we go. <laughs> Just don't tell me about a crime. <laughs> well, and that's the thing is, I you know, I can't say that because if he's, you know, we want to know if he's going to confess. So I can't right, right. discourage it. But in my head, I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. sure, buddy, tell me the thing. And he goes, what did the farmer say when he lost his tractor? And I said, what? <laughs> like I, I don't understand what's happening here <laughs> what farmer what uh, can you rephrase the question and he's like no just what did the farmer say when he lost his tractor and i was like i don't know how to respond right now and he goes he said where's my tractor and he laughed like i mean he amused himself tremendously uh, you know just belly laughed you know santa claus type laugh. and i was like did you just did you just tell me a dad joke while you're waiting for court and he's like yes i did it's your turn and so i spent the next i don't know how long too long because court is a lot of waiting it's a lot of it's sort of like flying where there's moments of a lot of activity and then there's long spans of just sitting still and waiting. And this was in one of those long spans and we spent that long span, you know, my response to him was, well, you know, I heard that, uh, you know, how geese always fly in a V formation and one side is always longer than the other. Right. And scientists have finally figured out why. And he's like, why is that? And he's all excited, you know? And I said, it's because there's more birds on that side. And again, you know, he just lost it. Like this was, this tickled him like nothing else. And so we spent an hour sharing 
the worst jokes. And that was to me such a a reminder that, you know, this guy did and admitted to some really horrific acts. Like there's no forgetting that. And it's important not to forget that when you're sitting there with them, because that is a, a fact of their life. And that's why we're here. And you can't, in my mind, ignore the crimes that have brought them to this place. It's part of their life. It's part of their history. But there's more to them than their worst day. It's more, there's more to this person than their worst act. And so that's not me saying, so let them all go, it's fine. But it is me saying, there's a human being in here. And there's this guy who can do things that you couldn't show on television. You know, he did some big bad stuff. And at the same time, the same person can giggle about the dumbest jokes, like jokes I would tell my five-year-old and just, just be absolutely tickled by that. And I think that was, it was a weird day, but it was one of my favorite days ever at work was to listen to this guy. It was more, you know, I didn't, his jokes were terrible. Like, let's be honest, they were really, really bad. But to listen to him laugh and to know that he can sit here. Now, that's, I mean, uh, again, let's be honest, like, that's a sign of sociopathy. Like, there's something wrong when you can sit and wait for a court appearance where you're the defendant and tell jokes and laugh. Like, that's not great. But at the same time, might as well. Yeah. You know what I'm impressed with? That you had jokes to tell because <laughs> I don't have any jokes to tell. I mean, I would just come up blank. <laughs> My husband is a math professor and math people love puns and jokes. You know, obviously, of course, not all, not everybody, but it's a thing. They really like wordplay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there have been moments through, I've been married 21 years now, and there have been moments where he's gotten going trading dad jokes with the kids and I have gotten up and left the table and just been like, you do your thing. I cannot keep you all alive and sit here and listen at the same time. So I'm going to go before I end up you know, one of my own clients and enjoy it. So I, I, I didn't realize that I had this sort of repository of bad jokes until I was called upon to <laughs> dig them all out. Right. <laughs> Have you ever felt um, sitting across a prisoner and not necessarily serial killer, but have you ever felt unsafe? No, actually that job was one that I felt safer than many others because they've already been through the system. They've already worked through the process and they know that so there are within prisons, there's like a second court. Like there are judges who only work in prisons and there are what's called status crimes. So there are things that a prisoner could do and get in trouble for and have time added on to their sentence for that wouldn't be an issue on the street. 
you know, uttering threats and insults or, you know, not keeping their cell up to certain standards or being found with certain possessions that you're allowed to have on the outside a cell phone, for instance. And so with that, you, you don't mess with the staff. You sometimes push back at the, at the COs, at the corrections officers, because those are your jailers and they're keeping you locked in a box. And that's pretty unpleasant, but you don't mess with the mental health staff, the medical health staff, the, uh, this, you know, the religious staff, the support, you know, the people who are not armed, basically, you don't mess with them. You especially don't mess with women. It was just understood that any degree of even perceived threat could result in pretty serious consequences. And so I felt very respected and very safe there by the prisoners by the inmates and they understood. I was always very honest and very clear about this is what I am here to do and this is what I'm not here to do. Like, don't tell me how you're innocent. I'm not a fact finder. I'm not a judge. And all I'm gonna do is write down so-and-so claims innocence and then we're gonna move on. And that's, I think, helpful for them to understand, you know, here's what I'm here to do and here's what I'm not here to do. I had sad moments because of how normal a lot of these people were you know i i used to say that the only difference between us the staff and them the inmates is that we have a key and we get to go home at the end of the night but these are your neighbors and these are your family members and these are just they're just guys who got caught and all of us have done things that arguably could have ended us up at least in the court system and possibly in jail or prison and we just don't get caught for it so i mean one of my earliest jobs when i was just sort of getting trained and getting used to working in the prison because it's a weird environment you cannot have a cell phone with you you have to go through a metal detector and if you bring your cell phone you have to put it in like a mail slot outside you know in sort of the, a waiting area and you so the only people in prison who have phones are the inmates like they have contraband but staff don't have phones in prison and that's a weird way to live especially nowadays when we all live with our phones at arm's yeah. length at all times how do you get contraband in the prison oh i can't tell that I can't you know like I answer. can't I do I absolutely there are some there are some really clear ways but I can't give people ideas because I don't want to be the one who who offers an idea that somebody hadn't thought of but there are a lot of ways to get creative in in get things in pieces or bribe or there are ways mm -hmm. and um you know some of these guys have I mean, they all have, there's drugs, there's a very active drug scene in prison, that sort of contraband as well. Um, there, 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 are, there are fairly creative ways, but early on, I'm, I'm working with this guy and I'm getting trained. And he, uh, 
you're supposed to do an, an intake with everybody that comes in to sort of try and get a baseline. And it's a pretty short, you know, one or two page form that effectively gathers their, their demographic information and a basic history. And basically what you're trying to do is catch them quick early on before they have the chance to talk to other inmates and learn that it's to their benefit in terms of the prison economy to be medicated and then to learn to collect it and sell their meds um, especially like ADHD meds but there are others as well that that have a pretty high street value as it were inside the prison and so the goal is to sort of scoop them up and get them to you know say what what meds and diagnoses they've had in the past before they've had the chance to to be trained by other inmates and what to say uh didn't always work but that was the goal and so this guy comes in to the room with me and it's a it's an unused classroom or an empty classroom anyway and you know the, the i as staff always sit closer to the door for security and safety and they lead this guy in and he's approximately the size of a small car like he's just not not in an unhealthy way he's just enormous he's he's you know six six or something like that like really tall and really wide and just a solidly built intimidating dude and you know i'm like you know he they handcuff him to the chair and i'm like all that's gonna do is give him a weapon like he's gonna stand up and swing it like it's not gonna slow him down for a second but okay this is a thing that is happening now and you know i get him to to you know everybody re is referred to by number and so i get his number but i also ask you know first and last name other names you've ever used blah blah and toward the end of that I said to him, you know, okay, we're, we're, we're done. That's all we need to do here. Um, let's call him, call him Joe. Uh, so, you know, Joe, thank you for your time. And he burst into tears, this huge, intimidating dude sobbing and i'm looking around like oh what oh, i broke what, it. what did i do like <laughs> i don't understand and i'm like i I, I don't know if I should be apologizing, right? Like, I don't understand what just happened. And and he says, he's like, I haven't heard someone use, call me by name in five or 10 years, you know, because you go through, often you're in jail before your trial and then you're remanded to prison after, you know, jail is a shorter term thing. And then prison. so he'd been through the system a couple of times and hadn't been around family and just hadn't heard anyone call him by his first name. And hearing someone say it and hearing someone say thank you caught him off guard because the prisoners refer to each other by last name or by nickname and the guards refer to him by number and he wasn't ready. And that was when I learned that you can't make somebody vulnerable like that and then send them back out on the on the record like i had to make up questions to ask him mm -hmm. just to give him time to sort of put the shell back up and 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 put the 
you know, put the shutters back down over the eyes so he could look tough and together. And when he left, I just sort of waved. Like I didn't, I didn't call him by name again because I wasn't. He didn't you know, want like, to I cry again. <laughs> I, for real. I, you know, I can't be taught. And so those sort of moments are what stood out to me. It's like, that's, it's such a sad thing. Yeah. That we, we don't just treat them like animals. We, we treat them like numbers and that's it. Yeah. And do you think that's on purpose that the guards are calling them by number to dehumanize them? I think they have to. I think I, you know, I'm not, I'm not a fan trying to be diplomatic when I say that I'm not a fan of the posturing and attitude that comes with a lot of law enforcement, but I understand it that you are doing an inhumane thing. You're keeping another human in a box. And I think you have to do things to separate yourself from that human in order to do your job. And it, it is their job. And so, okay, I'm, I, I don't blame them for having to do that, but it is a thing that, that happens is that they're looking at these numbers wandering around. And if they connect too closely, that's both a security risk because you might let your literal let your guard down mm -hmm. and also i think it's a mental health risk to sit there and really realize and think about i'm doing i'm i'm not treating this human like a human and that's that's hard i think so the numbers thing i think was a Maybe not conscious, but it was definitely a deliberate maneuver. Yeah. It's disturbing, though, because I just can't help thinking about the Holocaust and how they were tattooed numbers on their bodies, you know? Yeah, this is the only, you know, instead of tattoos, they wore bracelets. But but it, yeah. it, it, it was upsetting. And, I, you know, and I learned to ask everybody that I sat with, what would you like me to call you? Mm -hmm. And sometimes they couldn't answer that question because they weren't given even that degree of autonomy in prison. And that's a tough thing. Like people get, get deeply beaten down and broken. And then I always fast forwarded to what is this guy going to be like when he's returned to the street? If he can't answer a simple, what do you want to be called? How is he expected to make better choices, safer choices, legal choices mm -hmm. once he's out there again? It, it was always like the, our system is pretty broken and, and it was scary. Yeah. Like he took all their choices away. So they're, used to not making choices for themselves and then you release them they probably won't be able to make any choices or not if not if they're not given any training or opportunity if it's exactly like you know it's it's how do we expect them to make better choices when they're not 
they're just held in the box. Like prison is not about rehabilitation in our country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Kate, if people want to look you up and find your podcast, how can they find it? Ignorance was bliss is at IWB podcast on all of the social medias and I'm online far too much. And, and it's on all of the major, major podcaster podcatchers, as far as I understand it. So if mm-hmm. you look up ignorance was bliss, that's me. And, you know, I, I, I you know, honestly, I worry, <laughs> I worry a little about the people who have listened to every single episode, because I'm like, aren't you tired of me? Like, <laughs> I get tired of me. It's, it's meant for people to dip in and dip out based on are you interested in this topic? or you are not interested mm-hmm. in another topic? And it's always okay to, to skip an episode and I try to give a heads up about what the topic is in the show notes and in in the intro to each show so that people have an idea of of, do you want to spend your next hour with me or do you have somebody else you want to listen to and and I don't take any of that personally because you know you're talking probably oh gosh probably 500 hours when you add it all up with intros and outros and whatever that's a long time that's that's a full-time job <laughs> to yeah. listen but you know but, some people you, know, you might be truck drivers or people who are on the road a lot or even i don't drive a lot but i usually do listen to podcasts when i'm driving it's amazing what you can get through in little 20 30 minute bits you know, and sometimes it's real good and I'll go home and continue listening to it at home, you know, so I take it as a compliment when somebody listens to all my episodes. I mean, I'm like, wow, geez, Liz, thanks. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it is a compliment, but I'm also like, I'm just tired of myself. Like, <laughs> oh my God. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's been, it's been fantastic. And I've talked to everybody from, you know, actors that you might recognize from movies or TV or authors with pretty big, you know, sales, that kind of thing. Podcasters Mm -hmm. with millions of downloads and the like to listeners with no audience, because I feel like everybody has a story that is Mm -hmm. worth telling. And if they're willing to tell it to me, I'm willing to listen. Well, thank you so much for reaching out to me and connecting and being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was lovely to meet you. It was nice to meet you too. So go listen to Kate's um, podcast and check it out. Now a word from our sponsor. Transcendence Treatment Center is North Charleston's new private treatment center for drug and alcohol addiction. Our outpatient program is led by a highly qualified staff with years of experience in the addiction field. Enjoy the benefits of treatment while still going about your job, school, and daily life. Our treatment program uses a holistic approach to treating and healing addiction, and we provide a warm, safe, and non-judgmental environment to help you explore and work through those issues that keep you stuck in the cycle of addiction. We recognize the value and importance of family and offer family and friends support groups as well. 
conveniently located off Route 526. You can find us at 3900 Leeds Avenue, Suite 101 in North Charleston, South Carolina. Call us for our free pre-screen today at 854-222-3773. And a member of our team will be happy to help you take the first steps towards your new life, a life free from addiction. You can also visit us at our website at ttreatment.org.